Scotty, energize. Energize. February 23rd, 2015, the day after the Oscars. And, uh, yeah, it's me, Lon Friend, back in uh, San Pedro for one visit. And the best unscheduled podcast in America, Energize, Lon Friend Podcast. I have guests in studio this evening. I will announce them soon. Uh, currently, I'm uh, working on uh, my uh, possible case of whiplash. Okay, so here's what happened. I'm driving on the 215, which is the beltway outside of Las Vegas, and I'm stopping at one of the lights at the 95, and out of nowhere, I mean, I swear it was like the day I got mugged in Long Beach, got hit on the head. Boom. Crash right behind me. Boom. Knocks me into the car in front of me, which is a brand new Chevrolet right out of the showroom. I'm in the middle. I'm sandwiched. And I get out of the car. I go, and I said the same thing as I did when those guys hit me on the head on the bus stop. I said, what the fuck? And this dude has a black Mercedes. He gets out. He goes, oh, my accelerator's stuck. What? You have a Mercedes. Accelerators don't stick. No, I didn't say that. I was in shock. I was just happy I was alive. I'm not going to embellish exchanged information and just working on my kind of neck ache a little bit and my left arm but I've been you know taking care of myself so I'm in pretty good shape but I had this pain in my left arm and I'm not going to make a big deal about it I'm just happy I'm alive it was the car my mom left me the 2002 Camry so her spirit kept me alive I guess let's look at it that way and I have a good lawyer okay so it's uh, Energized Lawn Friend Podcast I have wonderful guests. Things just happen spontaneously, mostly from Facebook conversation or history that you might have or random meetings. <clears throat> to my right is, well, they're both to my right, is a uh, music producer, man of great pedigree, discography. Um, we met once 20 years ago. When I was doing the A&R thing, which I failed miserably at, but it was a great experience. I made enough money to live in a good neighborhood around the corner from Ray Bradbury. So I guess you have to look at all things. <laughs> <laughs> Michael Beinhorn, it's an honor to have you here. <laughs> Welcome. Thank you. I'll, I'll run through the litany of his records in a little while, but... <laughs> <laughs> but he did produce Mother's Milk by the Red Hot Chili Peppers. And I have a funny story about Mother's Milk. <laughs> when I was with Aerosmith on the Pump Tour in 1990, I was on some in some bus in some town, and Tom Hamilton kept going off about how his, his kids really into this Chili Peppers record. His son, who was about 13 at the time. And he goes, it's this, it's this Red Hot Chili Pepper, Mother's Milk. So there was an Aerosmith son who was way into that as a teen, as a young teen. That's where it stuck in my head. Plus, I loved the video for Higher Ground. I thought that was great. And then I became part of that whole weird uh, Funky Monks DVD 
because like Rick Rubin invited me up to the house in the Hollywood Hills. Oh yeah, the Houdini haunted house. How was that? That was was a whole day. They walked me around, showed me where the ghosts were, and it was cool. And then we ate Indian food. I'm in it. I'm in that DVD. I've had people say, "Hey, you're you're the guy that says boner in every groove." I go, "Yes, that's that's my line." Thanks. So speaking of boners, uh, my other guest, <laughs> who also has a, a notorious pedigree, is uh, Liberty Bradford Mitchell. She is the daughter of the late Artie Mitchell, one of the Mitchell brothers, the iconic pornographer family from Northern California, uh, North Beach, San Francisco. The Barkers would be outside. Come on in, man. You got to see what's going on in here. Mitchell's Brothers was notorious. They also made the first porn I ever saw when I was 18, which sort of was like a foreshadowing of my years as a porn critic at Hustler Magazine. (laughs) But I went to see Behind the Green Door and the Resurrection of Eve. Mm. Am I right? Shot inside. The Mitchell Brothers, right, Liberty? That's right. And that was Marilyn Chambers on the swing doing every orifice being filled at one time. And I was 18, and I said, this is making me sick, dude. And I was with this guy named Robert. I I can't watch this. And I literally left the theater. Wow. And then five, six years later, I'm being paid to review these films for Hustler Magazine. Go figure. Anyway. It's amazing. The irony. So... The alchemy of great radio is to put disparate people together and brilliant people like you two and see what happens. So we have individual conversations and then we collide in conversation. So anyway, what's the closest thing to to a pornographic experience, Michael, you've had with a band, a rock band? I saw saw the Chili Peppers once come out on stage with socks on their penises. Okay, (laughs) and and I I want to congratulate you. Never mind for for that happening. I'm not. I don't want to keep this in the gutter. I want to bring this up. I'm glad that you're okay now. (laughs) I'm okay. (laughs) I I don't know that I'm okay. All right, I'm trying to I'm trying to be kind here. I'm not. Perhaps I may have overstated the 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 case. I don't know if I should, if I should respond to your question. You don't have only, to, do. Only no, I I don't want to get anyone in trouble. No, we don't. Throw, I don't want to get in trouble. This either. show has never thrown anyone under the bus, <laughs> tour bus, Greyhound bus, any bus. Uh, all I can say to that is, looking at the the group of people that I've worked with over the years, and in understanding what their proclivities are, I think you can probably like connect the. Okay, sure. <laughs> was I'm, cor- try, I'm just try, I'm just trying well, to be. Well, well, let me just let's very diplomatic. I, I, I get I'm this. Attempting I, to be diplomatic. I'm here. not going to stay in the in the in the gut. <clears throat> I want to bring this up. But, I think that's a good idea. But celebrity skin is a just a remarkable, nothing pornographic on that. It's a remarkable. Way. It's a remarkable record. My daughter got into it when Thank she you. was like six years old. She goes, "Dad, you have to hear this whole record." I go, "Make." <laughs> I'm well aware. Oh, I mean, I watched Courtney breastfeed her daughter at the MTV Awards in uh, 19, well, 80, 80, 90, something like that. No, UCLA that was... Poly Pavilion. 
Oof, that was crazy. That was the, that was the show where Elton John did November Rain with Axel. Mm. That was a good show. All right. So anyway, okay, Liberty. Yes. Who named you Liberty? My father did. Actually, I was born in San Francisco, 1970. I was conceived at a in a an apartment on Haight Street. <laughs> okay. Yes, good. And I was born when I was born. Um, my mother hadn't considered any name options. She looked at me in my big round cheeks and said, "Why don't we name her Peaches?" Right. And my dad claims, the legend is, that he had read an article in the San Francisco Chronicle about a debutante from Virginia whose name was Liberty. Okay. And he had thought, what a boss name. So he said, well, how about Liberty? And she said, okay. Or, so I would have been Peaches or, you know. Now, by the time you were born. <laughs> it wasn't going to be easy no matter what. When from you, the beginning, we knew. I think the, latter tra- the one you wound up with, I think, is definitely the. Yes. You, you dodged a bullet. Thank God. Since, you dodged since a bullet I still am working these cheeks, it's or, like. Or at uh, least. A, it, 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 or, all, it works fine. Or at least a pit. She dodged. But a bullet, uh, Or at least <laughs> pit. Okay. I, I, I see where you're taking Okay. Uh, Liberty, what, was your father <laughs> already dabbling in the. Yes, the Mitchell the Brothers. The Blue Arts. The Mitchell when Brothers you were born? film group had was established. Um, my uh, the, the O'Farrell Theater had opened uh, July fourth, nineteen sixty nine. So about a year before I was born. Okay. And before that, they before they had the theater, they had started making films a couple of years before then. And my mom, when she met my dad, he and his brother Jim were already making uh, featurettes. They called them and selling them. Were to they loops? Loops. Right. You, and um, but they were more creative than the L.A. loops that were that were prevalent oh, so on the San scene. San Francisco had their own genre of loops. Yes, and that's what set the Mitchell brothers' work apart. Okay. So they 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 became so successful just within that community. They mm-hmm. said, "Well, we got to get rid of the middleman. We got to have our own theater." Okay. So they renovated an old car dealership in the Tenderloin, right on Polk and O'Farrell, and. It is still there today. It is. But that is where in the early days they it was a full production facility. It's where they shot the films and then had a, had a theater and sold popcorn. Did because it was San Francisco, it was because it was, you know, the land of Leary and Garcia and all that progressive thought. Did they have legal problems in the beginning? Did they they push the envelope real early, right? Couldn't do in L.A. what they were doing in San Francisco. Right. Oh, yes. They had they had legal problems from the beginning. Mm. I mean, pretty much every time they'd um, change the marquee, they mm. would get arrested. Right. My dad, um, he was arrested 187 times <laughs> in his life and his brother 189. That's more than Sebastian Bach. <laughs> <laughs> who was a who patronized the theater many a time? My father was very fond. Why of do him, I actually. find that not hard to believe? <laughs> he, yeah. Were you ever in the theater when the rock band came through? You know, sadly, I was not. Oh, okay. You know, I I was back east for most of my high school career. Um, Where'd you, know, you go to school? I college. went to Walnut Hill School for the Arts. I went to a performing arts prep school outside Boston for right. high school. Okay. And then I returned. I briefly went to USC. I was totally uh, unprepared for the conservative people. Mm-hmm. I just knew L.A. was cool and they had a good theater department. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I was there for, for a couple of years uh, in late 80s. And um, so during that time, I'd take my friends. We'd do road trips up to the O'Farrell. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we had, we had some experiences up there. Yeah. And uh, Did you get arrested? 
No, I never did. But, you know, I spent my entire childhood in, in abject fear that I would. Wow. Because I knew my dad got arrested a lot. And what, what terrified me is that, you know, we'd go, we'd stop by the theater on like a Saturday afternoon, you know, say we're heading into the city to go to the zoo or mm-hmm. wherever. Mm-hmm. And we stopped by the theater in, um, you know, the sign in the lobby said under 18, not admitted. So I took that to think if the cops come mm-hmm. and I'm here, I'm going to be in trouble because I'm not 18. That's you know, right. so I was like a real stickler. I was a real good girl. You know, I really, my rebellion in my family is that I was very, very straight for, you know, most <clears throat> of my childhood. Wow. wow. I was the oldest of six. So... Someone had to keep it together. Okay, so <laughs> all right, so Michael, Michael, what's your where's your beginning? Yeah. Where were your beginnings? Uh, well, there's quite a few of them. What where, what, what year do you want to start? Where did you where did you grow up? Where did you where? grow up? What town did you call home when you were little? Back in the distance. And what records were you time. what records were you spinning in your room that made you want to be a record producer? Well. I grew up in Forest Hills, Queens. Okay, sure. Uh, yeah. Amidst the tennis stadiums and the... Uh, Scott Ian's from that neighborhood. Uh, yeah, yeah, he is. So is Paul Simon. Yeah, Paul Simon. Um, and uh, I liked... I love music. I, lo- <laughs> I love music very much. What's the earliest record you remember listening to in, uh, in, your, in your room, as, as Brian Wilson would have put it? Well... Um, I didn't have any form of music playing early on in my room. We'd sort of like a communal mm-hmm. stereo system, and there was just a constant barrage of classical music and, you know, Beatles records. So it was kind of sure. like all that. So, you know, I grew up listening to, like, Johann Strauss and Beethoven and Mozart and Vivaldi and all this stuff. And, you know, uh, it was uh, it was very compelling. My mom's also a pianist, and an, and she was an opera singer as okay. well. So uh, it was uh, it was inspirational. And then I uh, went to see The Longest Day. <laughs> okay, sure. <laughs> and the sound of all the explosions did something to me. <laughs> it warped my brain irreparably. So I'm not the same person <laughs> I was before I saw the movie. And after that, all I thought about was explosions. And then then I saw. Um, you remember that record, Switched on Bach, that uh, yes. yeah, Wendy Carlos record? Yeah. With the picture of a guy pretending to be Johann Bach, and there's a big Moog synthesizer. I, on the, I saw that, and I was like, oh, my God. I want one of those. <laughs> I discovered Walter Carlos from the Clockwork Orange soundtrack. That's, I'm telling you. Right? <laughs> right? <laughs> no, it was, that, that stuff was amazing. No one, that, those were new sounds. They were new ideas. They connected in some way with the visceral um, presence mm-hmm. of all the music that I loved so much. Mm-hmm. The idea of things blowing up. <laughs> I'm thinking of that so scene from Elizabethtown where the kids are making noise and he shows them the scenes of blowing up stuff. And that's how. <laughs> and then uh, in 1973, I read an article in a Rolling Stone magazine about a guy named Brian Eno, who'd sort oh. of like, you know, he I, I didn't really make too much of the connection with Roxy Music. Uh, so I go out and I get this guy's record, and I get the I see the cover of it. Wait, wait you got Weird. here come the warm jets. That's the, yeah, his first solo record. I go home and I play this thing, and I swear to God, I have not been the same since I played that That's record. That's beautiful, dude. It <laughs> fucked me up so bad. 
I, so bad. I studied for <laughs> tests listening to Here Come the Warm Jets, Before and After, uh, after Science, the Frippinino records. My brother and I would listen to those. And then early, then the first Kraftwerk record. That but, ambient music was great for studying. But, uh, <laughs> well, you couldn't prove it by me because I didn't do too much of that. So good on you. Um, I, <laughs> you had, well, that's why you became a techno, a tech. You were a technophile, no, and see, I didn't see that as I being supplemental. I didn't see okay. that as a supplemental activity to anything. I just put those records on. And I was like, nah, I want to be that. This is oh, what I want to do. Awesome. Because it it hurt me so bad. I mean, it derailed me from what, it, like, my interest before that was, like, I wanted to be an illustrator. Okay. I was the only 13-year-old, I think, who, in, maybe in creation, who wanted to be a medical illustrator and who was actually teaching himself anatomical drawing. Like Da Vinci stuff? <laughs> yeah. Whoa, man. Yeah. That's actually him. Frank Netter, who was, like, the father of modern medical illustration, which I think is arcane now because computers do the job so well. But it, it really is beautiful artwork. Yeah. Uh, do you, have you seen any uh, stuff like? Uh, uh, my grandfather was a surgeon, so yes, there's lots of. Uh, wow! So oh, so nice. he'd have pictures that Netter did too. Yes. Wow. My mother's mm. father. Impossible synchronicity here. Yes. Netter. It's amazing, right? Wow. So, <laughs> anyway, no, th- this that derailed me. There was so much imagination, and that's what good music can do. It mm. can actually throw you so far off. You know, away from what you think your trajectory is into something completely different. It can literally lift you up off the rail and put you onto a brand well, new. Well, those one. early Roxy Music albums took me there. Oh my What's God. What's her name? Virginia Plain, For Your Pleasure, Dream Home Heartache. <sighs> That's fucked up stuff. It is. Yeah. Very. And then they got a little bit more structured later, but the music was the Brian Ferry's voice. He he was, you know, him and da- he and David Bowie to me were like the, the premier mm. pipes coming out of. The UK, they were they could sing anything, and I would dig it. Yeah, yeah. and Fer- Ferry was he was definitely in a class by himself. Yeah, in a lot of ways, because like I mean, with Bowie, you could hear the the influences like Anthony Newley and Scott Walker, mm-hmm. both of whom are Im- amazing. But Ferry was just sort of like this guy came from Mars or something. Yeah, it was amazing. There was a little bit of. Uh, there's a little lounge in him. Yeah, kind of croony type stuff, but he he just wasn't a good enough singer technically to be able to pull it. You're laughing, but because you, you know it's true, right? You know it's true. Hey, Mike, <laughs> Mike, you better find find Dream Home Heartache, Roxy Music. I think I want to hear that one instead of instead of the song about my accident. This so we keep talking. Roxy that. Music did a song about your accident? No, I was going to play Whiplash by Metallica. How the hell did that work? I was gonna Roxy Mu- What'd you do? Get in the Wayback Machine here? No, no. Oh, I'm trying. I'm mixing topics. How did you convince these guys to write a song about your accident like 30 or 40 years ago? This okay, is so that, that record I just showed you, right? Uh, I got Twilight Zone stuff coming up in a little while. Oh, thank God. That record I showed you, that's the night that Avalon went on sale, Tower Records, Sunset Boulevard, and I went down. Mm. In the parking lot with all my friends that loved Roxy Music, like Joe Bazzello and my brother, and and we 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 got to see them. And I took brought the album by Brian, and he signed it. That's that's the only vinyl I have left. All my thousands of pieces are gone over the years because of survival and moving and whatever oh, else. That's terrible. No, it is. It's the sweet demotion. <laughs> but. <laughs> Well, if you can make sense out of it, that's wonderful. Right. I wrote that's an, I wrote a 500-page memoir about it. <laughs> okay. That is record 
is it is not been sold. That is still here by signed to Lon Brian Ferry. That's beautiful. It's precious. It's beautiful. So, Liberty, do, do, do you have anything to add to this conversation right here? <laughs> you do you know what? Do you, on the spot do you know? Like do you know what Dream Home Heartache is about? It's about a man who's in love with his blow up girlfriend. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. Blow up dog girlfriend. Well. Hey, Mike. That can be a meaningful Did relationship find it? from what I've heard. What are we looking for? Dream you home, a movie about dream it, home right? heartache, Roxy Music. <laughs> Let me keep looking. In every dream home, a heartache. In every step I take brings me closer to heaven. Is there a heaven? <laughs> Not bad, huh? You keep going, man. You're very, <laughs> you're very convincing. It's like my it. show. I can do anything I want. I, I believe you. It's not sponsored. I have no sponsors. There's no revenue from this show. It is simply a spiritual experience of great karmic origins. It's called Energize the Lawn Friend Podcast. We're spontaneous. Mike is looking for Dream Home Art. You can't find it. Oh, man. You have a huge library there. How about Virginia Plain? How about Virginia Plain? Do you have Virginia Plain? Not Roxy Music. Roxy Music, Virginia Plain. Play, How about the wee one. small hours? The wee small hours. How about Enter Sandman? That's we could play Whip. How about uh, we, Welcome to the Jungle? We yeah, could play we Whip. Go back to Whiplash. How about La Freak? Okay. Let's go back I'm to just going to All right, Mike, play me. Whiplash, and we're going to find the Roxy music. <laughs> no, no. And it, look, I, I got Michael Bynorn, producer, Liberty Bradford <laughs> Mitchell. She wrote a play called The Pornographer's Daughter. She's a playwright, and we're going to talk about nice. that too. And uh, and Michael Beinhorn did some social D stuff, and we're in their neighborhood. We're in Long Beach. Uh oh. Well, we're in St. Pete. Tell I'm here. We're in St. Pete. No, <laughs> the, we won't. <laughs> and it's uh, we'll be back. It's Energized Lawn Friend Podcast. Go. <laughs> Round.
Adam Grant, a nondescript kind of man found guilty of murder and sentenced to the electric chair. Like every other criminal caught in the wheels of justice, he's scared, right down to the marrow of his bones. But it isn't prison that scares him, the long, silent nights of waiting, the slow walk to the little room, or even death itself. It's something else that holds Adam Grant in the hot, sweaty grip of fear. Something worse than any punishment this world has to offer. Something found only in the Twilight Zone. Energize the Lawn Friend Podcast. So uh, it's February the 23rd. I'm doing a one-off here in San Pedro. My guests are Liberty Bradford Mitchell and Michael Beinhorn. And that song, I know that song. I said uh, it's, it's a Joy Division song. And 
my, my friend Kurt Lambeth in Las Vegas, I go by his house to pick up tra- traveling music because unlike me, he has an enormous library of tunes. CDs, vinyl, book, he has books. It's an incredible collector. And he, he, he gives me shit to, to take when I drive. So I go, hey, I haven't heard this. So I grab The Killers live from Royal Albert Hall. This looks interesting. They're from Vegas. They did really well around the world. And driving in today from the desert by the way it's snow it was snowing when i left sin city i have (laughs) i shot video on the road of the white the fluffy white uh feathery snowflakes on the yucca trees Mm. it's a beautiful thing i wanted to stop and if i was a photographer which i'm not i would want a photograph of how gorgeous this yucca tree looked with the layers caked almost like ice cream white ice cream on top of these trees because these trees represent heat and extreme horrible dryness and yet here they are <laughs> with like christmas trees that's fantastic it's wow. great it that's one it was great yeah. so anyway the drive was really cool and i heard that song i went i'm gonna play that plus shadow play <clears throat> a bastion of useless information hold on <laughs> Shadow Play is one of my favorite Twilight Zone episodes. It starred uh, Dennis Weaver. He kept having this recurring dream. He was dreaming that he was being sentenced to the, he was sentenced to die, the electric chair, and he had to go through it over and over. And one thing is, it's a real twist on perception and reality. Uh, the movie Inception probably. I don't know. Christopher Nolan probably knows that Twilight Zone episode because there's a lot, there's a piece of that in there. And I, there's this really random little fact in uh, Cameron Crowe's Vanilla Sky, which is also a reality-bending film. There's a scene where there's a television <laughs> on in the room, and on the television is that episode of uh-huh. the Twilight Zone. Mm. So that song by Joy Division, covered by the Killers, is <clears throat> called Shadow Play. And we got the intro thanks to YouTube, and this is my show. Okay, so let's get back to talking <laughs> about Yelan. shit. Okay, so Michael, <laughs> I'm going to ask you something. Marilyn okay. Manson, did you did you physically work with him? He's an intense individual. Physically, well, you did a best. I'm of not rec- a body worker. I you did a best records. of record. <laughs> I didn't. I, didn't I lay mean, a hand I on mean, him. did they say Michael put this best of together, and you never have to see the artist? Did you see the artist? Did you interact with Mike with Marilyn Manson? I think that uh, that was one of the uh, ground rules to us working together in the first place that we would actually have to be in the same room together. Okay. <laughs> otherwise, okay. Otherwise, then then things would not have worked out as they did. Okay, good. Yes, I did. Okay. I was there. Why? I Why do you ask? I don't know, because he's just, he's just an interesting character. I've written about him in the he past. And he's a very interesting character. Yeah. He's a very intelligent guy. He is. Um, he's also a very silly person. Yes. Uh, yes. I think... Uh, he drinks absinthe. Absinthe? Absinthe. <laughs> Yeah, have it's you a very t- strong thing. Have you ever tried it? My daughter said she had it in France when she was studying abroad. Have you ever tried I've it? I've never had. Oh, I used to. It. I used to buy it. I used to. I used to like it quite a now bit. Now, what? Actually. What's the buzz? Um, is it like hallucinogenic in some way? Or? No, no, no. That's that's old wine. Like, b- like what? Um, there is a uh, a an, an, a herb in it called uh, wormwood. Wor- um, wormwood. 
which in a large quantity is supposed to be fatal. But it's present in absinthe in such a small amount that it can't really do much of anything. I mean, the the only thing that happened to me, this is really high-octane alcohol. Right. It's like, you know, 120 to 160 proof. Right, it's like Moulin Rouge style, right? Yeah, exactly. slamming back in the day. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's, it's, it's naturally... If it's I don't know some of it's green some of it's clear some of it, I don't know but like it's it's very strong, but you remain lucid through at least a few shots, which mm. is unlike most other very strong alcohol. Which you know you have a few shots you're not lucid anymore. You're not very lucid after a couple of Jaeger shots, no, for instance. You're not. But with right. absinthe, you you remain lucid for a little bit longer. You feel your legs going out first. <laughs> The, then the, the brain shut. The higher brains function shut down later on. So. Theoretically, it's, it might inspire some creativity, kind of like opiates or something. Yeah, it, it, well, I never saw that. Theoretically, <laughs> <laughs> I never. I've never seen alcohol do anything good for anyone. I only. Amen. To I, that. Yeah, no, no, no. It he, doesn't work. When Alice Cooper played the tour at the, and it was one of the last shows of the old Universal Amphitheater, which became the Gibson, and now it's it's a, a ride at Universal, but before. That was a great venue in Los Angeles. Spent a lot of time at that place. And I saw Alice Cooper, and this was only a few years ago, two or three years ago, and Marilyn opened. It was like the heaven and hell kind of tour. <laughs> so I go backstage to say hi to Marilyn because I hadn't seen him in a long time. And I go, hey, Marilyn, it's Lon. And he comes over to me, and all he does is go, absinthe. And then he pinches my nipple and squeezes it so hard that I swore I thought somebody had Wow. Stab me in, in the chest. Now that sounds exactly the sort of thing that this guy would do. Right? Okay. Absolutely. Yes. I saw uh, Marilyn Manson actually by accident because I want, it was late 90s. I went to get tickets for Hole, and then it turned out uh, uh, they were opening for Marilyn Manson. Okay. I didn't really have any real knowledge of. So, you know, like I just I went, of course, with my friend, and it turned out that Courtney Love had had a big fight. So it was their last night. It was Hole's last night on the tour. Okay. And at the end of her set, she made some kind of curse, you know, damning Marilyn Manson. (laughs) And then he came out and played about three numbers and then fell off of his platform shoes and fell down and didn't move. Shut up. And my friend and I were like, oh, my God, she she fucking killed Marilyn Manson. (laughs) Are you kidding? And they they had to pull him off. That was their like, we're sorry, the show is over. No, three songs. It was like three or four songs. Yeah. It it was over and it was was so hilarious. (laughs) My friend was like the surfer dude artist from San Francisco and I we are already both the total fish out of water because everyone else it was like in their black vinyl and yeah. like <laughs> yeah black mascara and like wow like the ecstasy is just kicking in and they're having a really bad trip now yeah, it was funny it was very it was an interesting we're like well we got our money's worth that was definitely that's awesome. yeah that's entertainment <laughs> that's that's worth watching it was it was yeah it was interesting. I saw him tear, tear a Bible in half on stage in Stockholm. Ooh. No, no, Copenhagen, the Rock Rock Skilder Festival. Rock, oh, I went to 1999, that one. Nineteen ninety nine, the year before the metallic the the Pearl Jam tragedy when those oh, kids yeah. died. That was <laughs> great. 90, festival. So, but I was there in ninety nine, and Marilyn Manson was playing in this tent for about I don't know thousand people, and he he does his rant. This song, this dark ranting song, and then he just starts to tear this Bible in half, throws it at the people and that the set was over he, he he comes off stage and i go 
do you do that in America, dude? <laughs> yeah, I can't imagine they care in Denmark. He goes, or he goes pretty... they don't care here. Yeah, they don't care. <laughs> they don't care here. <laughs> no, de- and, and Danish people are absolutely lovely. And oh, it's, yeah. it's they hard are. To, it's hard to wind them up at all, yeah. which is good. It's nice that it's nice that there are places in the world where you can't wind people up. Oh, yeah. yeah, and that's the place I found out I can go undercover because I'm part Danish, and my brother and I were there at Roskilde oh. in 92. Congratulations. Every, thank you. And everyone would come up and speak to us first in Danish, like, oh, no, we're, we're American. Like, oh, it's okay, we speak five languages. Yeah. And I'm like, you know what, if we ever need to go undercover, we come back to this is the homeland. Just blend right in. That's, that's a right. great place. It is. It's wonderful. And really, really wonderful place. And they speak English better than most Americans. Oh, yes. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Well, this is a big country. It's too big, really. It is. And there's too many people here. It's 50 countries. It's mm-hmm. 50, 50 countries, countries with lots of localities that divide it up even further. This state alone is like three states. Or it two, sure or is. two countries. This, <laughs> this, state, yeah. this state has the population of France. Right. And yeah, look what happened to them. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, la, la. Mon Dieu. C'est à l'heure. Et mon aussi. Fais-moi la bouche. Hey, Jim Morrison's ah. buried there. I went there. They had to move him, though. But I did. I, that's that's where my daughter's uh, I did flat was when she was uh, studying abroad at the Pierre Lachaise yep. subway station and metro station. And, and she goes, Dad, this is the sketchiest neighborhood. You should see the people that come here to Jim's grave every single day. Yeah. <laughs> Well, yeah, he died there, man. Some people think it's like Elvis. Like, well, we really still don't think he's dead. He could be alive. We haven't seen, we haven't seen the certificate. My mom was so into Jim Morrison. She uh, once made one of her boyfriends a pair of leather pants, just like his. Yeah. Before she met my dad. Uh, yeah, she's an amazing seamstress. That was really nice of her. I know. That's lovely. I got to believe that what some kind, of the more what kindness. I got to believe that some of the more eccentric musicians would have wanted to meet your dad and your uncle. Oh, yes. And, you know, not just musicians, but, you know, artists, artists. journalists, journalists, people across Hunter the Thompson. Yes, he was a friend. Uh, yeah, he unfortunately never wrote the book he did research for, but he worked as the quote-unquote night manager for a few months in the mid-80s. <laughs> he did. Doing quote-unquote research. Research. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, the Mitchell brothers, they they come up a lot in his articles and, you know, made it on the honor roll in a few of his books and whatnot. But, yeah, I would have loved to at least seen the notes from that, that period. That would have been some I mean, Ralph, book. Ralph Stedman did Stedman, the artwork. sure, of course. They did. They made a do- uh, documentary called The Crazy Never Die, uh-huh. about Hunter. Uh, and um, Ralph Steadman, it's a great, uh, it's like Hunter in, in, a, in a casket. <laughs> and um, they went up when he was, char- one of my dad, their last big road trips was, and my dad wouldn't let me go, and I begged, like, please let me go. They, they, were, they road tripped up to Woody Creek when he, um, there were some bunk rape charges, as my dad's, he was like, yeah, you know, this bunk rape charge on Hunter. <laughs> So we're going up. We're bringing a red shark convertible with a buffalo head, a Winnebago full of strippers, <laughs> rifles, and we're going to protest and just pretty much send the message. The judge was like, "I don't know where you this put this." This goes to your... trial. I just love we're it. gonna. This is just the beginning. We're gonna bring every fucking freak <laughs> to honor the doctor. And uh, yeah, he walked out like Nixon. I'm you know, Vic. <laughs> he so, made it. V for victory. Your so mm. colorful. Yeah, that was my dad. Yeah, well, I play him in my play, you know. Okay, like, so among other characters. Tell, what tell, a segue! Wow, what that, a, that was good. Smooth operator. Artfully done, beautifully. Done. What about your play? 
The Pornographer's Daughter. The Pornographer's Daughter. Well, I started writing it when I was at college in Seattle in the mid-90s. I um, I should backtrack a little, I guess, to say. So my father, uh, for those who don't know the story, the Mitchell brothers, his life came to an end in February 91 when his brother and business partner, Jim, shot him when he was at home, um, pretty much in bed one night. So it was very controversial, you know, horrible, tragic. This is Cain and Abel in Total its most Cain and Abel modern, and gruesome context. At the time, yeah, yeah, there was a lot going on. At the time, we were trying to get my dad to go to rehab. He was 45 years old at the time. Mm-hmm. And um, my, you know, my uncle went to jail for three years. I had, to, I had to go on the trial, and it was all, you know, a lot of trauma. So I had the good fortune, however, to – my best friend moved to Seattle in the summer of 91. So I moved to Seattle in Dude, August. Dude, right before the grunge movement. Um, yeah, I went to the – I was at Mother that, Love Bone. I moved there, like, yeah, about a minute before Nirvana, mm-hmm. you know. I was at the Halloween show, actually, which they'd just been broadcasting. Mm-hmm. One of two people in costume that Halloween. Right, right on. Quickly, only problem with Seattle is a horrible, horrible city for Halloween. LA is a great time. I mean, I'm a theater geek. I fucking Halloween's my day, right? Like, yes. That's the day I get to just feel normal. So all the amateurs. But Seattle, they just they don't care. They, they just are all so cool and gradual. There's also a horrible costume. place to date. I'll tell you that too, because oh. all the guys were all beautiful and disaffected, and just their hair was so long. You didn't date any grunge rockers. They were so gorgeous, and I, you know, whatever. Really? I dated a bit, but you know. You, really? No. One, uh, no, no one from Mud Honey hit on you. <laughs> No, no. <laughs> no, my friends, actually, my, my friends, uh, her, her boyfriend's truck. roommate was in Candlebox, and everyone oh, hated them because they, they got signed by Maverick, who yeah. was their first act. Guy O'Seary. And, yes, Guy O'Seary, yeah. and, and everyone in Seattle hated them because, well, they weren't grunge. They just were a rock band mm. that, you know, happened to write some catchy pop tunes. Yeah. And they were like the guys who, you know, when I moved there, they were broke, and we were bringing a six-pack to the recording studio, and mm-hmm. we're just hanging out. And then, like next thing we know, they they just you know blew up. So it was really interesting. But yeah, thanks to them, actually, I got to go to that Nirvana show. They opened for they opened for Metallica. They did a tour with them, and yeah. So those were fun days. But during that time, I, I went back to college because after I was kind of on hiatus, just around the time my dad was killed, and I was twenty, um, I ended up there's a small art school called Cornish College of the Arts, which was reminiscent of my prep school packy, so it came mm-hmm. in kind of a safe, kind of familiar, safe haven to okay. just like I just wanted to dive back into the security of, of you know, Greek theater right. and classic uh, art, and mm-hmm. there I sort of playwriting because I'd always been mostly an actor, and uh, I first wrote my first draft it was called Liberty on Trial about my trial experience because I was really haunted by. Basically, my trial was my testimony was credited on helping my uncle get a light sentence. It was basically snowballed by a very, you know, well skilled million dollar defense attorney, and the DA was a dipshit or paid off or who knows. Um, And this was a few years before OJ. You know, unfortunately for me, I think I would have been better informed by, you know, what could happen had that happened. So, it became this, of course, catharsis, and you know, over the years, I worked on it, and I moved to L.A. after I graduated into the 90s, and I had just kind of got a good screenplay together, and then, bam, Emilio Estevez and Charlie Sheen make Rated X for Showtime, mm, this yeah. really mm. paltry yeah. Showtime movie, which I'm a character in. They never called me. I was never in any way consulted. It was about the death of your dad, 
rated it was X. The, yeah, it was kind of the story, and you know, it was kind of the popular take was that my dad was somehow, you know, an al- because he was an alcoholic, he kind of well, who wrote to it? Die. Who did the research for that screenplay? Oh God, I don't even. I blocked they all. They just that hired out. some hack to do it, right? It was, you know, I think actually that was adapted from Hunter's. Um, oh, I see. Um, editor had written a book, which mm. was um, rated X, okay. and. Um, Right. So whoever wrote whatever. But, it, you know, fortunately that didn't do well. But I was like, well, I guess I got to put my thing on the shelf, you know, for at least a decade. And, you know, then and it, you did. Oh, I did. And I got married and had kids right. and, and, you know, but periodically different insights would come. And and uh, when did this configuration come together? Well, it was a few years ago. Um, and it was during this transition in life uh, be when I um, had decided to get divorced and get sober and a lot of other good things Mm -hmm. and um i've been asked to do a story slam uh, on the topic of sex share the story you know one of seven minutes Mm -hmm. share seven people do it and i had this epiphany because of like i could do this as a one-woman show i could do it i could actually perform the piece because i'd written it as you know variations of a stage play but with 30 characters or (laughs) screenplay and I was like, this is a really great way to distill it down because it is such an epic, big story. And I got had a lot of friends who supported me over the years and always would kind of nudge me periodically to do another draft or just work on it. And um, and I had long envisioned that music was such a part of my life. I mean, my mother was, you know, she came from the East Coast, was a huge, you know, huge rock and roll fan, was at Monterey Pops and, you know, lived hmm. in L.A. at the time, was... You know, saw everybody, and she always saying, "You know, she just sneak in to see Cream at the Fillmore, or, you mm-hmm. know, whatever." She's mm-hmm. so many amazing stories mm-hmm. of everyone who she saw. So music was, you know, I too grew up with the Beatles, and she played Chopin on the piano, and I did have that that balance and that understanding. And what I found from doing early readings of my piece was because the story is so intense, <laughs> because you know, you go through my whole life of just mm-hmm. part of it is the the backdrop of like. I grew up, ironically, in the middle of this pornography world, this is the family business, and yet no one ever really talked to me personally about sex. You know, at the, mm. at the heart of it, you know, mm. my mom was mm. a wasp, and no one had talked to her, and I think she just kind of hoped, like, you know, I'm a progressive feminist, and it's it's all going to be fine, and, you know, and she wasn't, you know, necessarily aware of what, what you know, my dad didn't have the best judgment. She, you know, we got exposed to things when we would go by the, by the theater and, you know... There's G-strings in front of my nose. It's 11 in the morning. And, you know, it's it was a lot to process. So I basically, as I was saying earlier, you know, I I just really entrenched myself in musical theater and Little House on the Prairie and, and to kind of build my, you know, my moral compass. And also for my mom and, you know, uh, East Coast relatives. And, yeah, I mean, I did have a lot of interesting people to, to craft together over her life. So basically... My dealing with my issues of porn would have been plenty if you know without the murder happening. But yeah. once that happened, it really trumped all of it. Whoops. Yeah. And I found like the insight I had, you know, once I was in my late thirties and I was a mom of two kids, um, I was really glad ultimately because things do happen for a reason. Mm-hmm. I, I was glad that you know I hadn't been able to do my script originally mm-hmm. when I might have. It would have been interesting, but my insight I gained as being a parent and looking back at my parents, being like, oh my god, my dad was. 24 when I was born and 26 when Behind the Green Door became a global phenomenon and went from having always like, you know, grown up dirt poor and really hard scrabbled and 
to them making millions, you millions know, millions on millions. people fucking on film, you know, and and hardcore jism, the whole thing, you not know, art films. This was well, this was it went savage. to the Cannes Film Festival. <laughs> Marilyn Ch- and and where was Marilyn Chambers before she swallowed the, all those organs? On the cover of an ivory snow box. That's right. Oh, she was just gorgeous. So, yeah. all right, Michael, we need to hear some tunes. Michael Stark, do we have Roxy music? Can we listen to it? This is Lawn Friend, Energize Lawn Friend podcast. We'll be back with Michael Bynor and Liberty Bradford, and 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 this is really good. Okay. <laughs> In every dream home, a heartache. And every step I take Takes me further from heaven Is there a heaven? I'd like to think so Standards of living They're rising daily But home, oh sweet home It's only a saying From bell push to faucet In smart town apartment The cottage is pretty The main house a palace Penthouse perfection But what goes on What to do there Better pray there Open plan living Bungalow ranch style All of its comforts seem so essential I bought you mail order My plain wrapper baby Your skin is like vinyl The perfect companion You float in my new pool Deluxe and delightful Inflatable doll My role is to serve you Disposable darling Can't throw you away now Immortal and life-size My breath is inside you I'll dress you up daily And keep you till death size Inflatable doll Lover ungrateful I blew up your body But you blew my mind
it's a tease. Brian teasing people. Yeah. Don't 
Energize the Lawn Friend Podcast, Soul Asylum, 1992. We're now visited by a <clears throat> frequent visitor to Energize over the past couple of years, Diana Bird. Hi, Bird. Hi. She just flew in and she's like, I love that song. I it do came love out that when song. I was five. <laughs> no. Five years before she was born. <laughs> it's okay. It's all right, as long as I appreciate it. Yeah. Right. Well, it was produced by our guest, Michael Beinhorn. And I think we should just, I mean, I'll ask the cliche question. Was, was, were the Soul Asylum guys cool, creative, engaging guys? Or were they, were they difficult? <laughs> were they douchebags? <laughs> I didn't want to say that because I take the high road liberty. Well, that's why I'm here. Right, Lon? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> um, the, the answer is yes. <laughs> you know, I mean, welcome to the hall of ambiguity. No, uh, the answer, no, because I don't think there's anything ambiguous about it at all, really, because the because the answer to, to all is is yes. There yes. is no either or. Right. I, you know, having done A and R, I'm sure you've seen this. Yes. yes. The, working with creative people, the uh, yin and the yang. They're, they're a bit different than you and I. The yin and the yang. Um, yeah, I get. Well, sure. You know, I. I Everyone has their issues and, you know, their good qualities. And, you know, creative people are different in the sense that they kind of wear a lot of that, if you're lucky, on, the, on their sleeve. Okay. It's kind of let, out there. Let me, let me do a better job at posing the question. If you must. Okay. What, how did Runaway Train come about? Who brought the song in? How did you begin to? What do you do as a producer to help? craft it varies the it varies so much and everything it varies so much it really depends on what the project requirements what was are. that specifically that uh, song let me tell you what that was pal that was someone <laughs> dropping amazing amazing songs in my lap and me going i want to do this record and fighting really hard to do it that's what mm -hmm. that was about those motherfuckers had a bunch of great songs and i was stunned that I was one of maybe like five guys who wanted to produce this record. I was like, how come everyone and their brother isn't rushing to work with this band? I think it was because there was a bit of a, um, there was kind of a bias against them because, you know, they'd, they'd already been on A&M. They lost their deal. They mm -hmm. kind of, you know, gradually made less and less good quality records. They well, had like and the, the blonde three. dreadlocks probably didn't help. <laughs> it, was, it wasn't hurting him, but, you know, who's to say? He, that doesn't... He it him, turned me off. He but, cut an impressive know. figure. People <laughs> yes. like... But you see, you didn't get to see, like, the... the um, 
stoking his cigarette butts into his like the cuffs of his pants. That was like a really mm. cute little. See, that would have that would have got me. Yeah. Okay, now that was that Bad that was girl like. You gotta thing. give people a chance. Yeah. <laughs> and he was a, he was a good drinker back then too. We had a lot of fun, um, but someone gave me this demo tape, and it had these songs on it, and that was the first song on the tape, and um, structurally it's altered slightly there are a couple of arrangement alterations that remain the the instrumentation is a little different it's obviously enhanced more to give it maximum emotional intensity but when you hear the demo the bare bones are there there, you can hear what's going on and all i did when i heard this song was like oh my god the song's amazing it's so good you know yeah it's so compelling and it's such a sad song too i mean like the thing that's interesting is that it got turned into this thing about runaways, which is an interesting way to kind of like, you know, kind of make the title literal, even though the, the, the actual meat of the song is about a relationship with someone. Yeah, like it's a, a metaphor. A, you know, a very kind of like odd relationship with, mm-hmm. you know, with, with a woman um, that he wasn't intimate with necessarily. But it's kind of, uh, you know, he's, he's kind of, there's a lot of confusion, a lot of mental turmoil going on. And I, I just love that about it. It's just so compelling, and you know the 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 melancholy, the melancholic aspect of it. It was beautiful to me, you know. But my job in that case, uh, specifically, was to work up the instrumentation, to kind of do arrangement tweaks where I saw fit, and mainly to get like the best performances out of the artist. What was your first gig in a studio? Um, Did you work for any? Iconic producers? Did you engineer? No, did you, no. How did you get into this crazy? I was in a band. Business? I was in a band called Material with a guy named Bill Laswell. Oh yeah, that he produced the second Bogman record. He did not. Yeah, yeah. Closed caption radio. They did the sessions. I went. I met him. You gotta he, be kidding. He me. looked like Rasputin. He was so interesting. Yeah, he acted like Rasputin. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. He, you know why? Because they were managed by Steven Saporta and Peter Casperson. Ah, of course. There's the connection. Well, That's I was in connection. a band with him. Okay. And uh, the last thing that we did together was a record with uh, Herbie Hancock yeah. called Future Shock, which had a song on it called Rocket, which is huge hit. Saved Herbie's career at that point, thank goodness. And, uh, you know, that, that was really where I started. I had no skill in a recording studio whatsoever and i might add no tact either (laughs) which is a skill that if you're going to do this you have to accrue very very quickly and by i i I use the word accrue because you have to get a great deal of it because you can make a lot of errors when you speak to people the wrong way sure especially when you're dealing with the nuts and bolts of their creative process well the egos are intensely fragile well you know the other thing is is that a person my experience with this is very interesting because a lot of people will be like, I want you to be honest. You know, I, I'm bringing you into this because I need your honesty. I need you to help me make my music better. And then, you know, you can say something to them. You, you studied their music for a little while. And you, you know, I think th- there's a couple of issues. And they're like, what do you mean? You know. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> what are you talking about, man? It's great. Uh-huh. You know, my mom loves this song. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yep. You're laughing because you've seen this happen. Well, right? I'm going to tell you another synchronicity here. All right. You worked ahead. with the Violent Femmes. I did. Gordon Gano, right? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. Well, the two of the Bogmen, the Ryan brothers, after the Bogmen broke up, and but they get back together once a year to do a benefit. But after they kind of dissolved when 
they didn't sell any records. The Ryan brothers went and hooked up with Gordon Gano, and they did. They toured together, and they did a soundtrack for the Heartbreak Kid together. The no movie, kidding. yeah, the Ben Stiller film. No kidding. Yeah. So there's all, all things I connected. Matt Dillon was in that, no? Matt Dillon, Ben Stiller. Heart, no, not the not the original, the one that came out like a few years ago. Oh. No, Charles Grodin was in the original. Yeah, and Charles. And Sybil Shepard. Sybil Shepard. It was a bit before Matt Dillon. Oh. Sybil Shepard. I'm all over the map, sorry. <laughs> That's all right. Don't Sybil worry. Shepard. I thought he was in the Heartbreak, the remake. He was in no, some you, kind of Heartbreak thing. You're thinking of a movie with Cameron Diaz. Oh. Not, not something about marriage. No, Heartbreak Kid. Was it Cameron Diaz in the Heartbreak Kid? The newer one? The, the one that Bogman did? I don't know, but we'll say Matt Dillon's a... He's a bang, so I'm just glad we brought him in here anyway. What about his his brother, Kevin Dillon? Matt's the better mm, not brother. Not so much. And I, I'm, uh, I met Matt Dillon, and he does not disappoint in real life. Mm. You know, most a lot of actors do. I thought his performance in Crash was pretty solid. Mm-hmm. Or he has to pull the girl out from under yeah. the car. Well, he was, was even good. great in The Outsiders, and that was sure he was Pony Boy. Uh, well, he was, he Dallas. was Dallas. Dallas, yeah. Dallas Winston. The the the, the death scene was you know could have been recrafted. Yeah, but it's okay. It was it was as early. So. <laughs> but yeah, isn't it funny how certain titles young girls find? Somehow, The Outsiders is this movie that comes up, or the book. Really. Well, they have to read. My daughter just read it in her seventh grade English it's, class. It's required it's reading still in required, school. Yeah, like like Catcher in the Rye. It's kind of like one of the well, only. Well, Catcher in the Rye is only required in certain schools. I never had to read it because I objected. Also, but I never. <laughs> Why did you object, Diana? Guess. Because Mark Chapman was reading it when he. Oh, when he shot John. Yeah. Yeah, that's, so. a, that's a good reason to shelve Catcher in the Rye. Like, guilt by association. Guilt by literary association. <laughs> you know, I, always thought, I thought it was overrated when I read it in high school, and then I had to reread it for a screenwriting workshop I was doing, and definitely had more insight reading it as a 32 year old. Well, has anyone here read Fifty Shades of Grey? Oh, fuck oh, no. God, Actually, no. I've read excerpts of it. Because we come from porn, you and me, Liberty. We come from that world. Well, and yes. all this hoopla about this movie, which is what is this? Is, what is this doing? Is it sparking a debate on? Uh, I think what it sparks a debate on is how women are treated in in general about abuse and weird sexual practices that demean. I don't know. Yeah, maybe that's the dialogue. When the book came out, women were reading it at like the soccer games, yeah. uh, you know, and cuz they were into the du- fantasy. Duct of tape it. was being sold out in in Home Depot. Oh. But as my friend, my girlfriend, mm. she says, "I don't want to read that. My mom and all of her friends back in Ohio are all excited about it." I'm like, "Exactly." Well, you isn't know, like, it still the <laughs> Forbidden fruit kind of attraction. Yeah, but I, okay, I tried to read, okay, because I worked at Barnes and Noble, so I got to read everything I wanted. And I read like the first few pages, few pages, and I was just like, it's not even that great of writing. Right, well, that's what's so disturbing more than any content is the fact that (laughs) that is the writing that millions of people are buying into. Let me tell you, it's hard to get people to read a fucking book. Wait, wait. (laughs) Just just let me put this into proper perspective, okay? I had my taxes done today. My royalties for Sweet Demotion for the entire year were $45.57. Yeah, I remember who was like, one of the prime contributors to that? Oh, and Michael Beinhorn bought my book. I bought your book oh, for nice. you. Yeah. Okay, so that's my royalty for the year. For the year, okay, writer. Okay. And I'm pretty proud of that book, the writing in that book, even though, no, you know, obviously nobody read I'll it. I'll buy a copy, Few too. people I'm did. Sorry, but I read it. But this 
this book is the biggest selling book in modern right. history. What? Why? Hype. Hi. It's very simple. It's very that's simple. That's it. It's, it's that like the simple. Da Vinci code advertising, wasn't. Advertising makes everything possible. Mm, that's it true. is the one. Th- I say that. I, I would say that that may be one of the greatest contributions to world culture that the United States has made. It is an important contribution, and it ensures that, at least for now, mediocrity always mm. has a good chance at, being, at, at, at getting consideration. Always. Mm-hmm. Advertising is key. Why do you think people talk about branding all the time? Right. Which is a conversation that drives me apeshit. You know, especially per- pertinent to music. What a load of horse shit that is. You know, people are worried in bands about, like, getting their brand established instead of writing better songs. That's that, con- expo- that will speak directly to the whole thing of the, con- like, the value and the, 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 the quality of the content Dude, that we're missing. That is, the, exactly. that is, that is all mm-hmm. over the emails and Facebook messages I get from young artists about, Lon, will you check this out? We've, our image is this, oh, and, yeah. and we plan on playing this kind of music. For the, I said, this is dude, the biggest issue. Dude, but none of disconnect. this means anything unless you write great songs. This yeah. is where, but this is where people have an immense disconnect right now. There's a tremendous. I, I read something today about how um, this guy who's kind of like a economist. I'm not sure what, what he is. I mean, he he, apl- he applies like a lot of social principles to a, a economy, and he made a reference to how there is a continued endeavor this is the, the culture is continually creating things that no one wants yeah no you one know? wants and i think that that speaks directly to this that they, that it you know you can find people who will spend a hundred million bucks buying you know copies of 50 shades of gray but who's going to walk away from this experience with their lives changed i don't want anything sold to me in paid advertising but a lot of people i don't do. want any of it i don't want they coke don't and better. beer they don't know any better right, and it's because they're being advertised too this right. is the issue in and of I'll itself i'll read oprah's top 10 and that's i'm good for the season you well, know that's it just keep this right? figure in mind Noble. $47.57 that was my role. That's, hey, more, than your, I made, that's more than I made writing this year, buddy. <laughs> and, and, and my accountant, Joe, Joe Wilson, my accountant, Joe Wilson, does, did me a solid this year, man. He did my taxes good, Joe. Thank you. But, but, d- but, but you Lon, can't escape that's your, that. That's your 47 bucks. You yep. earned it. Someone bought your book. Someone you read it. I did. And the, it's not and the, a bad book the amount of money versus <laughs> you. the, your talent, <laughs> it has nothing to do with like talent versus how much money you make from it. No. Because there's so many good artists that you can go see on Venice Beach yeah. just playing guitar, singing, yeah. sound better than some of the crap, I mean, stuff that's on the radio. Yeah. I think right crap now. would be the operative shit. word. Dog I mean, shit. Dog shit. I, I couldn't agree with you more. <laughs> it's yeah. true. You know, um, but. But if if people aren't don't have access, if there aren't filters to be able to get the stuff that's good, you know they're only going to pay attention to someone who's like saying, "Look at look at this, notice right. me," and waving something shiny at them. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I am not going to say that people are stupid because I don't. Fe- I really don't feel that way at all. I think it's very easy to convince people to do something when there when there's a when there are people who are very capable at selling things, mm-hmm. trying to sell very, very hard, and they have so many tricks, you know, so, so, many, so much ability to be able to spin stuff, 
so that you can get people to believe things that basically go against even their, their own basic precepts and logic. Yeah. You know, I mean, come on. I get it. Good. <laughs> Products. Yeah. yeah. It's the path of least resistance. Like, just tell me what to do. People are too busy, I guess. I don't know. Well, there not, is not an a, element to that. Yeah, there is an element to that. Yeah, I mean, because the, the human mind has a, has a um, you know, l- let's say you've learned how to do something, you know, some, like learning how to drive a car. Remember what it was like when you learned how to drive a car? It was exciting. Well, here. But it, was, but it took, like, it took a lot yeah, of effort to be oh, able to look. get the... Yeah, I've got to do that. Gradually, you establish a neural pathway whereby yeah. the process of being able to do, to do that is distilled down to something where you're not thinking about every individual thing, every individual movement of your body because right. you, you're Become- aware that you're in this vehicle that if you do the wrong thing with it, you're going to kill yourself and someone else with it. Right. You know? Like the guy that rear-ended me. Exactly. I couldn't even have the radio on when I first started driving. I yeah. started driving when Bridge Over Troubled Water came out, and Mike was playing the boxer earlier. And I Hello, used to... Darkness, I, my old friend. I was distracted. No, wrong record. Oh, how nice. I w- <laughs> well, that sounded good, though. Sounds of Thank Silence is, yeah. isn't on in Bridge Over Troubled Water. Oh, I don't care. It's, it's okay. still those guys. Still I had a great Simon song about a gynecologist. Paul, to Simon, that song. Paul Simon's <laughs> from, from Forest Hills. <laughs> It's all connected. Everything at the In Lawn the Friends show, Energize, is silence. connected. That's right. It's all connected. <laughs> what'd you think of what'd you think of Paul Simon and and, and, and Paul McCartney singing? Yes, I've just seen it. That's so cute. It was cute. I didn't see it. What they On do? Sa- the oh, Saturday, the Saturday Night Live. Live. No, I haven't seen it. It was a yet. pretty terrific show. It was long, but it was it had some it reminded me of like my whole life growing up because I started at <clears> UCLA the first season of Saturday Night Live. Mm-hmm. So I remember watching Steve Martin and Let's Get Small and those early episodes. Sure. A lot of when really, Saturday yeah. Night Live really, was good. It's not out. good anymore. <laughs> I haven't watched it since like the sad. 80s. Everyone's always said that too. That's what's hilarious. Yeah, but it, yeah, it, it lasted for 40 years. Oh, well, yeah, because you keep getting those people making guest spots and everyone's going to watch it. What that. have we done that's lasted for 40 years? You, you haven't been alive 40 years. You haven't been alive. Well, you're barely alive. I'm 44. Yeah. I'm 58. I got you. Be happy. If you died today, everyone would say how young you were. Mm-hmm. That's how I think about it. You're right. Shh, I'll answer you in, in, in the future. <laughs> 40-year-old question. Do you have... Uh, what did I say I was going to play for you, Diana? I want to hear some Elvis Costello. Do you have, do you have, do you have Goon Squad? Yes, sir, Let's I do. do it. Elvis Costello for Diana. This is Lon Fran, Energize, Liberty Bradford, Yay. Michael Beinhorn. We'll be back with more festive conversation for you on a Monday night. Thank you.
great pipes of Chris Cornell. Wow. Energize the Lawn Friend Podcast at record was produced by my guest, Michael Beinhorn, also here with Liberty Bradford and uh, Diana Bird. And I'll tell you something. First time I heard that boy sing was the really kind of entitled was when, when I heard the Bad Motorfinger Advanced Cassette and Jesus Christ Pose, like, whoa. Oh, yes. He's, he's pulling the stuff from deep, a deep place. You had that, you made a comment while we were listening to the song about his vocals, Michael, how, <clears throat> how he laid those down. Yes, I did. Uh, and I will be happy to elaborate on that comment for you. Thank you, sir. Because I can tell that's what you really want. Yeah. Um, anyway. It's the girls. They the re- want. Yes, I well, want to know all about Chris Cornell. Then, does. Uh, you walk me into this, then, as, 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 as it's been said often, this one's for the ladies. Yeah. <laughs> Finally. <laughs> so, anyway, we're in the studio working on Super Unknown. It comes the day that we have to start doing Chris's vocals. And uh, we set up, as one normally does in the, uh, in the studio with the vocal mic out in like a recording area, and me and an engineer in the uh, studio uh, so that we can monitor what Chris is doing. And he starts singing along. I don't remember what song we were working on, but I noticed very quickly something. Not good was happening. Um, he was really, really disconnected. Like, just, it just, it sounded like he was singing off, like, you know, he, he was singing out of a phone book or something like that. It just couldn't, w- was completely elsewhere. On a different page. It, yeah. You know, I mean, we've all, we've all seen that when, you know, but, but with someone who's that good, you're kind of like, oh God, you know, I want it all. And this is a record. We're going to, you know, you got to save this. This is like great performance that we're hopefully going to be listening to 20 years from now, which is the thing. Which we are. Yeah. 20th anniversary of Super Unknown. Yes. Thank goodness. Um, so it occurred to me that Chris's issue was that he was uncomfortable having to sing to us, mm-hmm. which is, I think, how he felt about it, even though he didn't put it into words. So I was like, okay. Um, and Chris, you know, because Chris was, he made great demos. Like his demos were finished versions oh, of the song. Yeah. He was an excellent drummer, excellent bassist, excellent guitarist. In fact, he played most of the rhythm guitar on the record. And he wrote the songs and he sang them. So I was like, you know how to produce your own, dem- how to, how to produce your own demos. You know how to work a recording studio. I'm going to put you in the control room. I'm going to show you what part of the console to use. I'm going to show you what part of the tape machine to use. You're going to isolate yourself to this particular um, sector of the console. And, you know, are, you know, these are the tracks that you arm if you want to go into record. And um, we, put, we put the microphone up and ran the speakers behind it out of phase so there wouldn't be any bleed because the mic was in cardioid. So you've got sound that's going past the capsule. And, uh, you know, you, you, bet you wind up with the same kind of bleed that you would with, very lo- with you know, moderately loud headphones. So it's, it's good. It's not like having loud speakers in the room. Uh, so he was able to listen to the track without headphones and sing. And I was like, this is your setup. You know, do six to eight passes per song, like uh, full-on performances. And when you feel that you're done, come get us. And that was it. And I you left just the left. Room, just left the room. I was like, this guy does not need direction. He needs to connect with his music. And, you know, he came, ba- he came out of the room. He was like flushed. <laughs> yeah. 
about like two hours later, he comes into the lounge where we're sitting, kind of like leafing through Mix magazine and kind of like, oh, God, trying to stay awake. And uh, he w- he just had this like little grin on his face. I'm never gonna do it. I'm never gonna do this any other way again. Right. It was Bravo. it was fantastic, and he he enjoyed it. He was able to connect. He didn't have to feel like he was being watched by other people, mm-hmm. and which is you know it's important. It's important to create an environment for a performer where they feel. I I I'm not the kind of person who goes like. You know, we, this needs to feel live. You know, it's got to feel like you're out on the stage because I don't think everyone necessarily likes that. It's all about finding the the best environment and the best conditions so that the performer can actually do their best work, whatever that is. But you have to be empath- empathic with them mm-hmm. and kind of feel what they're feeling to get a sense of how would I solve this problem. And that's, that's kind of how it went down. Now, what fans don't understand, <coughs> the layman fan, is that there was an enormous expectation for this record. Hell yeah, there this was. This was the logical evolution of Soundgarden. It was like Metallica making the black record. I love that after, you're saying that. And just, it, this, so my experience was I get a phone call from Brian Huttenhauer, A&R, and Jim Guerno, who was the GM of the company, and they said, we'd like to play you the Super Unknown record. I said, okay, cool. What do you want me to play? Well, we're going to reserve Studio B at A&M, and we want you to come. We're just playing it for you. It's private listening. I went, I'm honored. Yeah. So I get there. There's candles on this piano. There's food laid out, beverages, and there's this big <laughs> chair in the floor and these huge speakers. And and it's like I realized that, wow, my magazine really is fucking well thought of. Because <laughs> uh, I don't deserve this. But I sat in that room, and they just cranked it. And I listened to that record from fucking note one to the end. And I took notes because I was writing a column for the album network, the tri- uh, tip sheet at the time. And I took all these notes, and I was so in to the power of the record. And I, I, I had an experience with Bad, with Bad Motor Finger. But this record was like, whoa, fuck. I, I totally got it on, like, one listen. And I don't get shit on one listening. I, I keep stuff spinning in my car ten times before I even make a comment about what I've heard. I got this record. Because I was the editor of a magazine, so I had to get it quick. Mm-hmm. And, and then the rest was, I wrote it up, and... Um, it was an enormously successful album, and they they invested in some very expensive videos at the really the time where MTV was shifting out of Wind Machines and White Snake <laughs> into <laughs> you know uh, the different experience. It's funny to hear you say that um, that it was supposed to be the logical um, evolution. Because I knew that that expectation existed before the record yeah, was made. Yeah, what pressure on you, dude? No, <laughs> not at all. Really? Challenge. Not at Challenge. all. Challenge. Exactly. Okay. See, the, you, you, you said word. that. No, it's, no, it's fine. You, you said that, though, because back then, yeah. and you know this, mm-hmm. that there were particular artists that you would look at and you just, you'd, go, you'd point at them and you go, that guy. Their, their next record is going to blow the fuck up. Yeah. Happened with Metallica. Like everyone knew that if they mm-hmm. stayed that course the, after the after the last one that they did, yeah, it, that the that the next one was going to be big. And obviously, it's one of the biggest records of all time. Who did they invite to chronicle the making of the record? Sitting here, thank you. There you yeah. go. And yeah. what a and what a chronicle. Yeah. And, and what a record. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, but with Soundgarden, it was kind of like it, it was a similar situation people looked at them and they were like after bad motor finger their next record is going to be enormous and i looked at this band and i was like 
the you know there's no way that I'm not going to make the best possible record with the, with this band. It has to be vis- it has to be visceral, it has to be present, it has to be it it basically has to move people. And you know I felt that as a performer, Chris always kind of held back a little. I mean he was kind of like always you know going like full octane, but at the same time there was an emotional component. Do you know what I'm talking sure about? Sure, I do. In in the earlier stuff, mm-hmm. I really felt that there was kind of that there was a bit of an emotional disconnect. I felt like he kind of let loose on Temple of the Dog. He kind of let it go a little bit because he was singing from the heart and he was right. dealing with issues that were emotionally close to him. Mm-hmm. But in Soundgarden, he could move away. Yeah. From a lot of that stuff, you know, he could kind of separate create a you know a division between him. And a listener, he could kind of hide a little bit, and I didn't like that. I was kind of like, no, this has to be this has to be a record where Chris steps out behind his great voice, and where you get to feel the you know the, the guts, you know the the sinews of this of this human being, mm-hmm. you know, where you really where you really have that, where he's just either unleashing, you know, his his frustration, his sadness, his you know his rage. You know, whatever it is, but Rage. L- yeah, but let it come out full force. Yeah, that was a transitional time for not just Soundgarden and Chris Cornell, but the entire music world was sh- enormous shift was going on from yeah. 1991 to 1993. It was out with the old, in with the new, and mm-hmm. the new we don't even get, but the kids. They get it. It was one time where these fuckers in their suits stepped back and let the real shit hit the fan, and the people find mm-hmm. the music, the kids find the music. And it was about the last time that that ever happened. Yeah, it hasn't again. happened in twenty years. Because right about the middle of the nineties is when things started to just kind of the 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 nuts and the bolts started to fly off <laughs> <laughs> of the machine, so to speak. Yeah. You know, I, I think people just gotten got it into their head that they had, had developed a system for printing money. So gradually, yeah. the quality of the printing records. Printing money. Well, mm. you know, I mean, you could see it. People were less committed yeah. to making quality music as the, as the 90s went on. And I think what I felt, what I got from the average person who listened to music, you know, I, I would include myself in that, is that... Um, they were they were just starting to feel that they were getting less bang for their buck. The records weren't as good. There was one good song out of like twelve, and the rest of it was was like mediocre. And we know, being vinyl children, what it was like to come home, slice that open, smell the inside of that record, open it up, look at the look at the liner notes, read, look at the pictures, read the lyrics, and say, "Wow, they made a real storybook with music oh, for God. me." This is a whole experience. Look, I'm a prog kid. I brought Lamb Lies Down on Broadway home, and I spent yeah. I spent a week yeah. just just staring at the pictures and the line, trying to make sense of the liner. Oh, notes Oh, and you get these beautiful mental pictures. Oh God, like, Quadrophenia did the same thing to me. Oh, Tommy yeah. did the same thing to me. Yeah, those are records, are opuses, man. That's yeah. what we did when we were fucking that kids in that day. That's what it was like going to the record store and bringing home a new record. So I can't really fault the whole digital delivery system. It's taken a little bit of the heart out of well, yeah, the process. N- now you can just go get that one song you want. And I'm an album. I love an album. Like, well, you're I an love- old. You have an old rock yeah, and roll. Yeah, but soul. when I, yeah. you know, in the early thousands, late nineties, um, being a kid, 
it was singles. Yeah. But um, I know I raised was, a kid your age. Yeah, there was nothing really <laughs> deep about it. And I would always ask my mom to get me the CD, the whole thing. I wanted the book. I still buy CDs, and it's hard to buy CDs now. Yeah. Like, you have to really do your research, and you have to like, go yeah. to special stores. Now, let me ask you a question, yeah. just to bring it up yep. to date. The way you make records now, with all the, you know, tools and techniques and modern equipment, is how do you do, how do you maintain that passion with the artist? When you could tweak things so easily that you I, could I phony it up, but nobody is, would notice. This has become a a kind of like a, a, a dog chasing its tail type scenario, I think, because like people have been trying to dumb down the whole process of recording as well as they're trying to dumb down the whole process of listening to something that you should be able to get it super fast Hmm. That it can hit you, not on a visceral level anymore, but just kind of like a more of a knee-jerk level. Mm -hmm. So it's not reaching you on a deep level. It's reaching you someplace else, you know, uh, a reptilian brain or something <laughs> like that. That's not I don't good. Know. No, but I, I mean... That's, that you had to bring in the New World Order. Okay. <laughs> God damn it. No, they man. actually use... No, that's yeah. biology. I'm not talking... I know, I know, I'm kidding. <laughs> I'm not that crazy. <laughs> don't worry. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't drink that Kool-Aid. No, 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 no. But uh, you know, the, the the process has turned into something where it's a vocational mm. um, experience. People don't really do it for the art anymore, which is why you have more records that feel m artless, yeah. that feel like they're not connecting in that same way. And I, you know, look. 25? 27. 27. Mm -hmm. You know, wh it's, it's disturbing to me, quite frankly, that you should be listening to music that I worked on <laughs> and that's older than you are. Yeah. And, light and loving it. Yeah. Because you're missing a comp an essential component yeah, from the music that sure. people are making today. That has absolutely nothing whatsoever to do with digital delivery, to do with illegal downloads, to do with streaming music and all this kind of crap. It comes from the source. It comes from the people who are making the music and the people who are subsidizing the creation of music. And when you have people that are, that have created a new context, or a context that's foreign to, to music creation, that doesn't work with some of the fundamental principles that actually make music valuable, and an important a cornerstone of society, you got a problem. Well, that's what I believe Dave Grohl is trying to do, is to remind us of how it was with his documentaries and his sonic highways and maybe it's become too i got an issue promoted i got an issue with that you know i i think that i think instead of looking backward it's really important to look ahead oh yeah for sure there's i mean it, like this last year there's probably three albums that came out that i purchased at from beginning to end it's all about the way they were produced, Which the artists. Rec what records were those? The Arctic Monkeys AM, mm -hmm. this um, band, the 1975, they're self-titled, and the Sam Smith album. From beginning to end, it's a it's a, an artist mm -hmm. with musicians. Everybody's working together, <laughs> and you can listen to it. Mm -hmm. And you're not like, oh, I want to skip that song, or I just want that one single. But... Those are like the only three albums that came out in the last year and, and a half. And you're pretty much 
listening to a lot of shit. Oh, yeah. I listen to all, I listen to new stuff every day, Mm -hmm. but that's totally missing. And there's no passion for that anymore not like there used to be i mean there's obviously there's great underground bands and you know oh another one was the kendrick lamar good kid mad city that i told you about okay but you know there's like underground bands and artists who still have that but the mainstream are there any florence and the machine fans in the room yeah Yeah. i'm a huge fan of hers i Mm -hmm. saw at the greek theater do two nights back to back and i said this, she, she's the first person to remind me of Kate Bush in 30 She's working on new 30 stuff, years. too. No, we have a song. Yeah, and I heard it last and week the, on the radio. And, and the and YouTube clip, she is burying herself with real naked truth in this video. It's like she's portraying the person, the protagonist, the, the with the shattered heart in this, and she's literally naked. And I don't, I didn't need to see Florence Welch naked to love her. I loved her pipes and how she That's, emotionally. It's evolved of you, Lon. She 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 <laughs> she grabs an audience, and you want to like go home with her and bake cookies with her. You just you you I love. I want to go this set w- stuff on fire with her. No, you know, yeah, yeah. <laughs> okay, so I want to go roll some cars. W- 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 wait, there's a happy medium there. We get into the kitchen. We start with the lunch. we start with the cookies and Vegan, the stove. Of course. The stove oh, yeah. explodes. Oh, yeah. yeah. So you got bring it all together. Yes. Can we hear right. that Florence song, Mike? All right, Florence and the Machine. This is Energized Lawn Fan Podcast. When we come back, we'll wrap it up because <laughs> I just looked at the clock. We've been on for an hour and 45 minutes. That's fucking great. Okay. I was on a heavy tip Trying to cross a canyon with a broken limb You were on the other side like always Wondering what to do with life I'd already had a sip, so I reasoned I was drunk enough to deal with it. You were on the other side, like always. You could never make your mind. And with one kiss, you inspired a fire of devotion.
Energize the Lawn Friend Podcast. I'm so thankful to Michael Stark, my producer and engineer, who has this great studio. Thank you, Michael. Whenever I come to town now to visit, I say, can I do a show? He goes, you can always do a show here. And uh, I'm thankful because they, it's we don't do it for the $45.57 of royalties. thought we, it was 47 yeah, thanks for paying attention. <laughs> You're welcome. I don't know. That's I, why he's the producer. Attention to detail. My guests have been uh, Diana. Thanks for coming by. Of course, Lady Die. Lady Die. Yay. Anytime. Dirty Diana. That's Dirty. she's well. She's, Diana Duwop. She's a big Michael Jackson fan. Oh yes, it's huge. Liberty Brad. Liberty Bradford Mitchell. I wish you when you come back with your play. When your play re-emerges. Yes. It will play in Los Angeles, correct? Yes, this June I am going to do a run at the Hollywood Fringe Festival. Fantastic. Planning oh, wow. on doing um, 10 shows, just locking up my venue. So that'll be early June. Good. Um, yeah, I've got a, uh, my band is called The Fluffers that oh. accompanies me. Yeah, a term from Love 70s it. porn, yes. Yes. <laughs> yes, so I have a live three-piece band, which is being reconfigured. My uh, boys I had up in San Francisco were great, but... We're getting a new a new lineup. Maybe okay. we'll even have a woman this time. Very good. So, Very uh, good. yeah, re- really, really excited. Well, um, we wish you the best, and we thanks. hope we come see it. I sure hope you I'll will. I'll come into town for that one. Yeah. And Michael Beinhorn, thank you for sharing your insights on these extraordinary records that you were involved with and for coming here and just rapping with us freeform. My pleasure. Yeah. Hey, what are you working on now? Uh, you, you wrote a book. I wrote, I wrote oh, a wow. book. Oh, <laughs> wow. I wrote a book. Uh, and I'm actually in the final stages of editing it with the publisher, so it's getting wow. close. Oh, yeah. Wow, that's kindred. Yeah. yeah, I feel that. What's yeah. it called? What's the title? I don't have the title yet. Um, <laughs> I'm kind of grappling with the publisher right now. I um, I came with a title that he felt didn't really kind of address. I had that the experience subject. with Planet Rock. It was called Rock a Mile, Adventures and Observations of a Music Journalist. And my publisher said, that's not working for the marketing people. I said, well, I have another title, Life on Planet Rock. Oh, I like that. That works. Oh, I thought your other title was going to be Fuck You. (laughs) (laughs) I was waiting for a good (laughs) punchline. You just sort of said what it was. I, I th- that didn't do anything for me. Oh, I know. <laughs> now that I think of it, it, it didn't do anything for me. Either. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm so proud to have walked you into that. <laughs> I am beyond unrecouped. I'm off the market. Anyway, that's okay. So your book, well, when you when it comes out, I I will just give you whatever good karmic insights i can because being an author is not easy and writing is selling books even harder than selling music these days or (laughs) getting it i mean it's all Uh, it's all difficult nothing's easy i I, I don't i don't know but i do know that whatever i have written (laughs) for better or for worse i i felt that there was a need for people who are doing the kind of work that i'm doing to access Whatever um, experiences that I've had, that's fantastic. Well, you know, and I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to tell like old war stories. No, because mm-hmm. I, I, I don't like that. You know, we <laughs> no, for the real. We didn't. Oh, we, 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 yeah, so yeah, exactly. Really we we could have gone down that rabbit hole tonight, but we didn't. No, we I, did not. I appreciate. This that. was a very robust dialogue, and I thank you, you never, all for being you my. You never guest. told your Steven Tyler story at the O'Farrell. Next time. Next time. 
<laughs> that gives Something me an excuse to have are. you back, Liberty. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I'll tell that story, and I'll try to get that fuck motherfucker on the telephone that day. So Liberty's doing a and play. I'll go, We're back in the saddle again. <laughs> back. And he'll say, <laughs> <laughs> he'll go. He'll holy. say, Lon, I don't remember ever going to the O'Fair with good. you or watching those girls do what they did. I think you're you're brain dead, man. And I said, I'm not the one who's brain damaged, man. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't do all those crazy drugs. <laughs> okay, that's it. That's a wrap. Energized Lawn Friend Podcast. Take us away, Michael. Thank you all. Love you. Thank you.